Take the Bibles and turn to 1 Peter as we continue to look through this great book to the church. 1 Peter chapter 5, and just follow along as I read verse 6, 7, 8, and 9 today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, as we think about it, I pray, Lord, that we'd be thankful that our ears can hear it, because this is the word of the king. And I know, Lord, when the king speaks, the people should be ready to listen. And I pray, Lord, as we do look at the Word of God, realizing that suffering is a difficult part of life. It's something that we cannot escape from. In one way or another, we'll enter it. I pray, Lord, though, when we do, that we would be ready. Because we know, Lord, part of suffering is an attack of the enemy against us. We know, Lord, you're sovereign over all things and that you even ordain it for us. And in this world of sin, Lord, it's all around us. So I pray, Lord, as it comes into our life for our testing, let us be ready. Let us be able to stand and resist in the proper attitude, in a proper way in which we maintain our integrity, our holiness, and advance in our godliness. I ask you this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 5. We have been considering in this last area three exhortations. Uh, The first exhortation being that of humility, which we've covered. The second exhortation being that of vigilance, which we looked at last time. And today we're going to be looking at this third one in the Christian's obligation and exhortation for resistance. In this final one, uh, we see that the first one was given in light of God's constant care. The second one was given in that of vigilance, was given in light of Satan's dubious character, that he definitely has a character and we saw that last time that he's walking about, that he is like a roaring lion, as the scripture tells us, and that he is seeking to devour. So that those are not, none of those things are good things. And so we need to be ready for all of them because he is relentless, he's restless, and he wants to come against those who are specifically Christians. He already has the world there, he blinded them. Uh, they're already on his side. But those who've, who've been rescued from his dark kingdom, 
into the kingdom of light, he is against us. And so the Bible warns us about that. The, they don't, the scripture doesn't want us to be ignorant of it. His motive is to keep unbelievers blind so that they do not understand or receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to keep believers ignorant, sleepy, and scared so that they fall away from being soldiers and witnesses of Jesus Christ. So in this third exhortation, if it's understood and practiced, it enables us to carry out the first two exhortations, enables us to carry out this third exhortation, and this third one is on this Lord's Day, the exhortation for resistance. Now, if, if you grasp the logic of the first and second exhortations, that of humility and vigilance, then stability and victory over Satan's strategies, his tactics, uh, and, of course, his, uh, himself and his minions are achievable. That's what the Scripture is saying to us today, that we can resist what he's throwing at us. We have to be ready for that. Now, the last time we met, I started giving you um, three examples in situations where Satan will take the advantage of anyone, someone, uh, and of course, we're going to revisit those and look at each one where the Bible specifically says Satan's involved with this. He's ready to, he's ready to manipulate. He's ready to exploit the situation. And of course, our job is don't let him do that. Don't let him do that. Right? We have the power in, uh, because of the Spirit of God and the Word of God and us being in Christ that he cannot have us anymore. He cannot have our soul anymore. But So in our life, we are to be aware of his devices and don't let him take the advantage. In other words, we're in a battle. It was a hot, hot summer day in Iraq. Staff Sergeant Kishiter was on a routine mission standing by his Humvee. He had his helmet on. He had his flak jacket on. He had all his gear on to go into a mission on a mission that day. I believe it was a Saturday. And he was standing there by his Humvee not knowing that he was in the crosshairs of a sniper. And just in a second, he felt this incredible force on his chest while the sniper shot his round right into the center mass of his body. He went down to the ground because of the force of the round and thought on that day, because it was so hot, he was all, all the gear on, he's already sweating, he's swimming in his sweat, and he thought that it wasn't sweat, it was blood. So he crawled around to the other side of his Humvee and he opened up his flak jacket, and saw that the round was lodged in a metal plate on his jacket. See, that day he understood, maybe more than ever, that the enemy has his crosshairs on him. And he felt that. Thank the Lord, he did not die that day. Because his armor, and remember, the Christian has both offensive 
equipment to resist the enemy and defensive equipment. You have to use both. That flak jacket with that metal plate stopped that bullet, and that day he was able to walk away. But I'm sure after that day he was way more aware of what was going on, what he could not see, and was making himself ready for it. That's very, very much like what a Christian should do. A Christian needs to be ready every day when they wake up and understand that they are in a spiritual battle. It is a battle that we cannot get out of, but it is a battle that's already won in Christ Jesus. But it still needs to be fought because we need to learn some things in that battle. And so this morning, as we look at the Scripture, let us consider arming ourselves with the Word of God so we are not ignorant of the devices of the enemy because he does have his crosshairs on you. All right? It should be sobering for us to realize that. So this first one that we looked at last time was we are to be ready because the enemy will exploit every situation. And the scripture that we looked at in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it was considering this, that we're not to be ignorant of his schemes because the enemy is on the attack against the church community and its unity. And of course, in this passage of Scripture, and I'll just, you can look on the screen there, but, and I'll read it, it says, But one who, whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his devices, of his traps. We're not ignorant of those things. So if Satan can suggest ideas to the Christian's mind and inflame the believer's affections with desires that stand in opposition to godliness, to holiness, and to spiritual growth, then the Christian, while taking the devil seriously must understand what parts of their own lives that they need to spend special attention on, their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities. So though Christians do not know when the devil will strike, they can be ready for his attacks. For it says there, we, in order that he'd not taken advantage of us. Of course, the, the scheme that he was plotting in 2 Corinthians here, his design, his plan was, his device was Satan was planting uh, the thought that Christians don't really need to forgive each other. He was planting that thought in the mind, the enemy desired to introduce hatred and animosity into the church, which which in turn would destroy relationships, and further damage the church's organic unity. So the term take advantage or don't be ignorant suggests that the devil's target is the believer's mind. And his weapons are lies disguised as the truth. It goes way back to the garden when Satan said to Eve, did God say that? Just a little twist of the truth, that's all. And it becomes a lie. 
And so that's exactly what takes place uh, when Satan comes against people. So Satan's work on believers to get the, is to get the better of them. The devil wants to destroy the power and the testimony of the church by, by planting stumbling blocks in the believer's way, keeping them ignorant of God's word, stifled in their spiritual growth, and of course not resisting the enemy. So Christians must resist if the church is to accomplish its mission. So that was the first one. The second example, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. Now, in this passage of Scripture, the point is that we are not to be ignorant of his schemes, and the enemy's scheme here is, or attack, is on our obedience and our relationships, all right? What is our obedience in the text? Well, our obedience where it says this in verse 25 of chapter 4, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. All right, so again, in this passage of Scripture, we do see that the obedience is for us to speak the truth. That's what God commands us to do, and speak it to one another when we're in conversation. Be telling the truth on things. Don't be hedging against the truth. Don't be, there's no such things as little lies or pink lies or anything of that. All right, the, uh, a lie is a lie. No matter what you call it, what, what color you give it, it's a lie. God wants us to speak the truth. And then he says in verse number 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. See, you and I need to be angry about our own sins and get rid of them. Put them off and away from us. We are to have a moral indignation against sin. Yes, we are to be angry but we are not to sin. The Bible doesn't say there, don't be angry. It says, be angry and sin not. So there is a righteous kind of anger. And there, of course, that anger can quickly slip into an unrighteous, unlawful anger that is very detrimental to relationships and is going against our obedience to tell the truth. So anger is a very dangerous state of mind, especially for weak and fallible and imperfect people like us. In most cases, it becomes an occasion for sin. So the scripture's emphasis for the Christian is whenever the feeling of resentment and anger rises up in us, what what are we to do? We are not to sin with that. See, under the old self, under the old ways, it was misunderstood. Often misunderstood and, of course, abused. In the new self, in Christ, we are to be controlled. We are to be able to harness that anger in the right way and use it righteously. God's given us 
the strength and the power to do that in the Word of God. And so the first thing he tells us, Paul's counsel to us in this passage of Scripture, is simply this, practice being controlled, where he says, do not let. See, it means that we are able to direct that anger in the right way. We are able to have a handle on that anger, so we're not allowing it to go where it would normally go. A second thing he gives in the council is that to keep it current, where he says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That, of course, the picture of the sun going down is allowing your anger to go past that day into the next day. And then the sun rises and sets the next day, and it goes into the next day. And see, what happens is that when those things take place and we don't do anything about it, then uh, there is a fine line between righteous anger and sinful anger. So when you cross that line, we are to deal with anger within current time, that the Christian should never allow the sun to go down upon their anger. Anger cannot be nursed. Righteous anger is to be controlled. It is not to be prolonged beyond sunset. Anger is not to be harbored beyond the day in which it began. So do this, so when you're able to harness that, you are going to do something else. You're going to be able to stand up against the enemy so he doesn't take advantage of you. To do this so you don't deny the doctrine and cause the gospel to look ugly, because anger definitely looks ugly. Evil conduct is a denial of the very foundation of the gospel. It was one man who says it may not always be possible to straighten out the problem with the other person before nightfall, but at the very least, one can settle the matter in his own heart attitude before retiring, before putting your head on that pillow. And then, of course, in a short time, resolve the matter. So instead, we are not to sin, but take measures to prepare to seek reconciliation, to bear the likeness of God's image by doing to others what God has to be done to me and you. And what is that in our passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4 and verse 32? It says very simply, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also has forgiven you. So in other words, be like God. Be like God. I must forgive another in spite of his or her being against me. Why? Because of how God has forgiven me all my sins and all my transgressions and all my iniquities. So we are to hate sin in ourselves and in others, but we are not to hate them. Instead, we are to forgive the sinner. We are to love the sinner. Then we are to help the sinner forsake 
their sin. Each day, we must never put our heads on our pillow to rest and sleep for that night while the spirit of bitterness or hatred or a lack of forgiveness lurks in our heart and mind. See, we are not to rest until you settle the matter. Don't rest until you forgive like the Father forgave you in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Scripture immediately adds, if anger is permitted to continue in your heart, then you give the adversary opportunity to act against you. See, why would I want to give them him that opportunity? I don't want to give him that opportunity. That's the point. And that's a way in which Christians resist the enemy. They know the Scripture. They understand the Scripture. And when a situation comes into their life, they practice the Scripture. They put it into play, and then they find out that the Scripture is definitely reliable in dealing with problems. So I am to practice being cunning. Do not give the devil an opportunity, it says in Ephesians. The word cunning, according to the Webster's New Dictionary, it means to know, to show skill, to be clever, something done with ingenuity. So I'm using it in the original sense of the word to have a knowledge and a skill, to be able to deny the devil the opportunity to get me, to keep me in my anger. And I do that by keeping the door closed to his diabolical influence. And I don't give the devil an opportunity of leading me or you into this, his opened, uh, irrational influence that he places over people. So the devil needs only the slightest place to begin operations and leads us to outbursts of passion. Since angry feelings so easily, so easily result in hatred and malice and sinful words and actions and and deeds and all those things. That's where it, it always leads to that. So we are to use our skill and our understanding of the truth so that the devil cannot do as he would like to do. The devil would like to keep you. He'd like to keep your anger going. He'd like to fuel it. You know why? And it's sometimes it's very easy for some people to have their anger get fueled, right? All I have to do is wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Right? It's not a sunny day today. That's, that's, that's one point down. Right? You know, the coffee didn't turn out like I like. There's another point. And then somebody's going to give you a hard time? I mean, you're ready to jump down their throat. See, he wants to leave, lead us to nurse grievances. He wants to lead us uh, to desire revenge against someone. He wants to lead us to slander with our tongue. And if we can't do it face-to-face, we'll do it on Facebook, which a lot of people take Facebook as a place to vent. Christian, you better watch out what you write on Facebook. 
it tells a lot about what's going on in your heart. Be very careful that you don't use these cowardly avenues to get out of your heart all the garbage. We ought to be doing that kind of stuff before God in confession of our sin. See, the evil one will help you feed your anger with sinful thoughts and ideas until the sun goes down and rises the next morning. Then the devil will help your anger simmer day after day until you have no self-control, until you grieve the Holy Spirit, until you set aside the power that God has given to you to put and resist the enemy, until you cannot put off the sin and you cannot renew your mind and you cannot put on righteousness. You'll be out of control, unforgiving, unholy, unmoved, diminishing any Christ-likeness that could have appeared in your life at that point. And at the same time, deceive yourself in your self-righteousness that somehow your anger is justified. That's what people do with anger. Any, any counselor when they deal with somebody who has anger issues or a couple who has anger issues, that's always the case, that somehow they want to justify why I have the right to dig in against this person because they did this to me and they did that to me. And the list goes on and on. And not realizing they have been trapped by Satan if they're believers. You can't let him trap you. That's the point. That's the point of these scriptures. Don't let him lead you down this path in which you are doing the opposite of what the word of God says. And then you lay aside the word of God, and uh, therefore you're up to your own thoughts and whatever the world impresses upon you as to what you ought to be doing. So that was the second one, but I do want you to notice in the passage how clear the Bible is about not giving the devil an opportunity. And then here's the third one, the third example that we're going to look at this morning. And again, I want you to take your Bibles this time and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4 to 5. And you may have not realized what it says in this passage of Scripture, but I want you to focus your attention in on it because this one is about... It is about... This, the enemy's attack on, I would say two things, devotion, our devotion to God, and marriage, our marriages, our relationships. Does he want to attack marriage? Yes, he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 4 and 5. It says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, yourselves to prayer, and come together again that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, in the context of this passage of Scripture, Paul here is dealing with the responsibilities of, of marriage, specifically the conjugal rights of each partner. Each render to the other what is their due once a person does get married. 
It is the marital obligation of mutual self-giving of each other to the other. The conjugal rights are to be practiced throughout the continuation of a marriage relationship. Now, this particular thought is actually coming from the Old Testament in Exodus, where the law of Moses was given concerning slaves. And that, remember, masters used to have slaves, and then if the slaves got married or were married when they became slaves, they were to stay that way. And the master of that couple was to make sure they did stay that way. For it says in Exodus, listen to what it says. It says, if he takes to himself another woman, that's the master, right? He may not reduce her food or her clothing or her conjugal rights. If he will not, if he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for, noth- for nothing without payment of money. Matter of fact, if, if you don't do this for your female slave who is now married, then let her go free. Let them go free. So the biblical principle is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So he says here, the wife has surrendered the right to rule over her own body and given that right to her husband. Likewise, the husband has surrendered his right over his own body and has given that to his wife. So the husband and the wife equally transfer their rights over their bodies to the other. In marriage, separate ownership of the body ceases. That's why you become one flesh in Scripture. You become one. And so this becomes very important, especially in the marriage bond. Now, some, however were neglecting their conjugal responsibilities under a false notion. They were thinking, in the context of the Scripture, if remaining unmarried, one is able to give oneself more completely to the service of God without distraction. Remember, Paul was talking about being single here, right? He was single. He was saying, be as I am, and he was given responsibilities between those who are single, those who are married, and all all those kind of things. And so the person is thinking, wait a minute, if a single person has more time and opportunity to be able to give God devotion, then practicing abstinence while being married will free one up and provide less distraction in the service of God. So this was thinking fostered in a good desire to give more time to the service of God, although this thinking was completely wrong and unbiblical. And so this is what's going on here. And so how much worse when marriage partners use the marriage bed as an instrument of punishment in which the doghouse is a, a real place? Now, don't misunderstand Marital intimacy is often complicated 
by the bad treatment of husbands toward wives and wives toward husbands. Whatever the reason, marital couples decide to deprive each other of conjugal rights, they should re-examine what they're doing by Scripture. They should have their thinking readjusted by the Word of God. And of course, if you are a believer, then a believer should be ready to be able to change their mind on something if they have been wrong. So, thinking about that, what is Paul's advice in this passage of Scripture? What's his counsel, actually? His counsel, Scripture really is very forceful in their answer. It says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, stop depriving one another. See, stop it is sometimes good counsel. But he undergirds that counsel with something else. This word deprive means to refuse or to defraud what the other has the right to. And of course, this the right they have the right to the sexual relationship between a husband and wife that God has given them, and they have no right to manipulate that because there's a problem if they do. The Apostle Paul is saying, stop depriving one another in an unlawful manner, then goes on to lay down a kind of test. And here are four things to evaluate lawful abstinence in marriage. How do I know I'm I'm doing the right thing? Well, he says in the passage of Scripture, number one, that, listen, it must be mutual consent. He says, stop depriving one another except by agreement. That means the husband and the wife have to agree. It's not a one-sided abstinence. One partner is to insist on abstinence without agreement of the other is to rob the other of his or her right or due. He's saying, no, you cannot do that. It must be mutual between the husband and the wife. It must be by agreement. Secondly, he says this in the passage, it must just be for a short time. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time. So it's going to be just a season, a short season. It is a limited, it's limited by duration because they may feel such abstinence will add intensity to their supplication or even their fasting if they're including that in they're abstaining, breaking them, breaking away for a, a short period of time. But it must be an agreement between husband and wife, and it must be for a short period of time. And whether they, they probably should agree on the amount of time, it should be two also. And then Paul says this, it must be for a spiritual purpose. Notice in the passage of Scripture, it says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. So it must be for a spiritual purpose. It just can't be from all, any old purpose. It cannot be because I decide that I'm going to use my, that marriage bed as a tool against my, my spouse. You cannot do that according to Paul saying that would be completely wrong and something against what God has, uh, is communicating to us in the word of God. And then he says this, it must be with spiritual discernment. I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, because this becomes the point that I'm making this morning. 
it says, stop depriving one another except for agreement for time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again. Listen to what it says, that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, to give themselves to prayer in relation to some weighty or pressing matter is definitely important. But here, we are there to do it with a spiritual discernment. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you look at the passage of Scripture, number one, they understand the sinful human nature. Number two, they understand that there's a weakness in the flesh when it comes to sexual things. They understand the power of temptation and the power of sexual temptation. And then they also understand more than any of the other that Satan will take advantage if they leave his foot in the door in this matter. He will take the advantage. He will want to destroy that marriage relationship, that family, and, of course, weaken the church also if that takes place. So this is a very serious matter. So Scripture gives a word of warning here. The couple must come together again or Satan will take advantage of any lack of self-control in one or the parties uh, concerned there. So any action taken, even for spiritual purpose, if it continues beyond the limits of natural endurance, it could lead to a breakdown in self-control, leading to other sinful practices, even adultery concluding in ultimately spiritual shipwreck. And what's Satan's goal? To wreck your life. His goal is to destroy. And if you give him that advantage, he will do it. Now, believe me, in this scripture, we're talking about believers here. We're talking about people in the church. We're talking about those who believe the word of God is the final rule of authority for life and godliness. So Satan and his minions would be quick to take advantage of such weakness in Christians, and so Christians must not give the enemy an advantage. Christians, you cannot let the enemy put his foot in the door. You cannot do that. So you don't have to do that because God has given us everything we need not to do that. So if it, were, for, if, it were, if it were not for the believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the word of God, there would be no standing firm against such a dominant enemy with his two-faced dubious character. So one must not forget that Satan has had thousands of years of hands-on experience dealing with fallen humanity. He has seen what works and has many cleverly conceived strategies and deceptions to use against us. Just as a fisherman 
knows the seasons and times fish are most likely to bite after the bait. He knows that some people are more ready for temptation when they are distressed and downcast, while others are more vulnerable when they are happy and full of joy. So he will always tempt a person with what is agreeable in his or her nature so that sooner or later he may draw that person into his debilitating net. Steve uh, Lawson concerned about the Christian faith under Satan's relentless fire, rightly cautions believers by saying this, mark it down. Every Christian has a real enemy. Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He is constantly attacking and accusing you, intent on destroying your life. Spiritual warfare is a fact of life as long as this enemy is alive and well on planet Earth. Now, Christian, how would we know that if it wasn't for the Bible? We would not know one thing about the enemy if it wasn't for the Bible. Because, remember, his tactics are, he is not there. He's just a fairy tale character. He is not alive and well. He's not there, but we know from Scripture that he has a mission. And his goals in that mission is to destroy us because we bear God's image, to overthrow the kingdom of God, to retain control of what he still possesses, and, of course, to regain his lost territory. His strategies are to entice to sin, to hinder our spiritual disciplines, to misrepresent God and truth, to oppose our sanctification. And his devices, he uses the same strategy, but different devices and methods for each person, where the Bible says we are, we are not ignorant of his schemes. So thoughts and actions involved in deceiving someone. So he's, he's attacking the believer's mind, and he wants to inject into their mind something other than what God says and even make what he says sound more true than truth itself. So the church has to know its enemy and not be ignorant of the unseen spiritual realm that we have entered into as believers. And remember, though, Satan is not all-knowing. He cannot be present everywhere. Satan is stronger than we are and is a formidable enemy, but he is not God or even equivalent to God, nowhere near who God is, even though he wants to present himself as that. He is a created being in which God has full authority over. He has been cast out of the presence of God. He is under God's judgment, and he's awaiting his final judgment where he will be cast in to the lake of fire with all those who do not believe with the antichrist and the false prophet who are there and the bible tells us greater he who is in you than he who is in the world so don't forget satan is looking upon 
his various plans to carry out his dominion in the world. He has his sights on anything and anyone who will give him an advantage. Anyone who honors God most and serious about serving God, Satan will struggle with them most unsympathetically. In other words, Satan views God's people as an hindrance to his reign, so he contrives methods by which he may remove them out of his way, get them to work on his behalf, or some other thing. He and his whole host of inferior spirits under, the con- under his control are trying to get the faithful ones to fail. Therefore, all the servants of God will more or less come under the direct or indirect assaults of the enemy at some time in their Christian walk. Remember, the devil is a slanderer who deliberately advances false charges against God and his people. So what are Christians to do? This is where I'm getting to in the passage of Scripture. Look back at 1 Peter. What are we to do? With such a formidable enemy against us, are we to cast him out? Some people would say, no. Are we to rebuke him? No. Are we to exercise him? No. Are we to bind him? No. So believers are not exhorted in our text to do any of these things in this passage. However, they are exhorted in Scripture to do one thing. And what is that thing? to resist him, firm in your faith. Now, I'll cover that more next time. But I want you to see what the Scripture says here. It says, and this is considering the five ways to resist the enemy. I want to kind of mention it here. But again, this is not foreign to other books of the Bible, too. We find it in Ephesians chapter 6, where I'll look at eventually, and then also in James. Look what it says in James. Resist the devil, and what what will he do? He'll flee from you, right? Now, he'll be back, but he'll flee. And he'll be back when you're at your strongest or at your weakest or anywhere in between. He will be back. See, but that means we always need to be ready. And so this is what we're called to do as Christians. We're exhorted to resist him. Well, how are we to resist him? Well, if we... Just look at our passage again. We are to resist him. Um, It says here, in your faith. Now, if you notice there, the your is italicized. That means that in the original, the your is not there. So actually, it reads, resist him firm in faith. And some have added the article, meaning to resist him in the faith which I believe is the better translation. In other words, God has given believers a detection system, making it possible for them to be aware of Satan's evil methods, and that alarm system is called the faith. The Christian's personal confidence in God and the system of teaching given to them by God in the Scriptures. Many Scriptures support the idea of using the faith to resist the enemy. In other words, the body of truth delivered to the church, the Bible, is what we're talking about. 
When we talk about the faith, we're talking about everything contained in Scripture, right? This is how we resist them. Even, I'm going to show you that when Jesus was tempted, in the beginning of his ministry, he did not perform miracles, even though tempted to do so. He did not do anything but quoted back to Satan the word of God. And as he resisted Satan with the truth, Satan left him. So we are to do the same thing. That's our example, is to use the word of God to come against him. Now, if you notice in these passages of Scripture here, the first one is to resist in the faith, and these passages right here are all confirmed that. In, verse, in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There's the idea of this body of truth given to the church, the word of God. We have it from Genesis to Revelation. That is what our weapon is. That is how we are to resist. And then, of course, Philippians 1.27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith. Now, you notice in all these passages of Scripture, there's a struggle going on. There's some kind of resistance going on. And so every one of them, and then Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. And then 1 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the fight I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. And what does Paul say at the end of his life before he puts his head on the chopping block to have his head cut off? He says, I have kept the faith. I've kept the body of doctrine delivered to the saints. I've given it to the church so the church becomes strong and steadfast and sober-minded and so the church can resist all the attacks against them that the enemy is going to hurl at them. So the faith applies to one's convictions, which must be well-grounded in the Scriptures and able to make one strong and solid like an impenetrable wall. And truly, as a Christian, as Christians learn scriptural truth, they become strong in the faith and in the conviction that God will never leave or forsake them. God's truth, which is light, will expose Satan's dark mixture of lies and half-truths because Satan is the master scripture twister. The Christian must fill his mind with the word of God so that it bends him, his, his thinking, away from the world's thinking away from the thinking of their old fleshly days and toward God's thinking and God's will. That's exactly what Paul told the Romans in Romans 12 too. And do, 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 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So by developing convictions based on the study, 
the correct study of the word of God, the believer is able to cling to the faith in the face of spiritual attack. They're able to maintain. They're able to stand firm. They're able to get up like Staff Sergeant Tishiter because they had their armor on and live another day until God takes them, and God has full control of that. I want to end this morning, and I'll pick that up next time with a quote from from Johnny Mack. He says this. He says, the devil's alternative credo, the credo is like a doctrinal statement, often has a few carefully chosen elements of truth in the mix, but always diluted and thoroughly blended with falsehoods, contradictions, misrepresentations, distortions, and every other imaginable perversion of reality. Add it all up, and the bottom line is, it's a big lie. But if he can get you to the place where you're ignorant of the truth, then a lie may very much sound like the truth because he will, make it do, he will make it sound like the truth. But if you are in Scripture, you are going to detect his twist of truth. You are going to detect when things come into your life that you know, if I did this, God would not be pleased. It goes against this passage and that passage and this principle and this doctrine, and you won't go there. And what you'll do, you say you will resist him by doing what God wants you to do according to the word of God, and then you will be able to stand and resist him in this battle. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll get ready for our Lord's table this morning. Lord, again, this morning, I, as we look at the word of God, we see, Lord, the examples of the truth. We see how in the word of God, Lord, you have given us very clear examples on how Satan works, and what we're to do. And Lord, I pray that we would be skilled and growing in our skill of Scripture to the point that we would be able to every day become more, a more keen soldier in the battle, that our minds would, would be transformed by your word, that we would understand what the world is saying and what we used to do in the past in our old sinful life and what you want us to do in this new life. And Lord, and when he comes against us, his lies will become evident. Situations that he manipulates will become clear on what we're to do. But it won't become clear if we're ignorant of the word. It'll only be clear if we're not ignorant of the word of God. So Lord, I pray, Lord, every time the doors of the church are open for the study of Scripture, I pray that we'd be here for this reason so we wouldn't be ignorant, so we would hear another lesson, so we would hear it from another voice. And so, Lord, you can build this body of truth in our mind so we know how to hold to it and use it against him as our weapon. For we know, Lord, it is a sharp weapon. It is a very pointed weapon. It's a two-edged sword. It pierces on both sides, and it cuts very deeply, even our own hearts. But Lord, at the same time, it will expose the enemy's attacks against us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us Christians that understand the battle, knowing the battle's won, but we have a responsibility to put our armor on and stand against the enemy. And I pray you would enable us to do that today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, this morning we have our Lord's table.